in the periphery if you have a nerve injury. Uh, most of the neurons actually grow back. But if you have a spinal cord injury, then these nerves don't grow back. And that is a, has been a paradigm in the field, because if we understand the difference, we might be able to tweak the signal in one direction over the other. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I am going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. neurons do you think we have in our brain? Neurons? Jeez. A lot? <laughs> You're making us look bad, man. 20 million. That number's way too low. In our body? I have no idea. I say like a billion. How many? Billions. Four trillion? Yeah. Four trillion. Billions then? Five hundred million? Let's just guess mag order of magnitude. I want to say hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. Hundreds of millions. I agree. Final answer. Good answers. Here's a hint, it's a lot. We've talked a lot in this series of two scientists walking to a bar about communication in biological systems. How cells talk to each other, how proteins and chemicals um, move in and out of cells and across bacterial walls. Of course, as an immunologist, I'm really interested in how the immune system gets activated and how those cells interact with each other and then the body and cancer cells, for example. So today we're actually going to talk about a very unique system and set of cells, the brain and neurons. Neurons are cells unique to the brain and the nervous system and govern everything that we do from the way we move to even the way we think. It's very complicated and to help us tease this apart and how the brain and the neurons communicate, I have with me today a leading scientist in the field of neurology, Kasper Hogenrad. Hiya Kasper. Hi. Let's start with a simple question. What makes neurons so special? Neurons are unique cells in the, in the body. They're beautiful, they have a cell body, which is like your immune cells. They have a, they're round, uh, they have the nucleus, where the DNA is and the, the genetic material in the cell body. But these neurons are beautiful because they have extensions. And they have two types of extensions. One is called the dendrites. That's more like, a, 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 you have to visualize it as a tree. They have branches and you have one single axon. And that is just uh, the output of the cell. And the dendrites we call the input of the cell. Before we get into the complexity of how all these neurons interact, I want to talk about size. How long is a neuron? Yeah, a neuron is unique because it's the longest cell in our body. For example, uh, looking at motor neurons, the cell body and the dendrites are actually in our spinal cord. And then the axon projects all the way to my, my toes. So in my case, it's a meter long. So this is a, a cell which is a meter long that's really fascinating. Jane. Yes, Wellington. That's big. How does that size compare with the size of the immune cells you work with? Well, if you just think of the average neuron size, that's a, anywhere between four and 100 microns. 100 microns is about 0.1 millimeters. And an immune cell or a white blood cell is very similar in size to that, around 10 microns. So, so somewhat similar. But if you're talking about the longest neuron, one meter, well, we don't need white blood cells that big. 
how rapidly can a signal move across the cell? Yeah, I, let me turn around the question and say, if we don't have active transport, how long does it take just to get from one side to the other by diffusion? Because diffusion is random and it takes actually, I always ask my students to calculate it because you have a diffusion constant that you can calculate it. So just a protein diffusion yeah, just randomly. across yeah. the ground. How, does, yep. how long does it take to, to get to a one meter? It takes three years. So basically you need a mechanism to transport uh, and to actively bring materials, uh, cellular uh, components, building blocks, all the way down this axon. It's like we've evolved our own little mini computer system to deal with this, right? So how fast is uh, communication along a sciatic nerve? Yeah, it's, it's of course not so fast as a highway or as train systems, but on a cellular level, it's actually pretty fast. So um, the mind boggles a bit when you start thinking about smaller creatures and then larger creatures. I'm thinking elephants, giraffes, even whales, right? If you think about the size of us and the size of a whale, it must have a nervous system or a long nerves in the order of 30 meters or more. Yeah, it's completely correct. Uh, uh, even if you think about dinosaurs, what about them? They, they, they predicted to have like really long axons and uh, like a giraffe, yeah. And if you just multiply the speed of information, it must take not milliseconds, but seconds to transmit some of the information yeah, across it, these large it, mammals. Yeah. By the time their brain gets the message, they've stubbed their toe or yeah, been or hit the, by an arrow. Or, or there was a tiger. Or <laughs> <laughs> so back to then um, how communication happens in neurons. Like how does information go from up to down and down to up, right? Yeah. So you have to think about a, a neuron as a, as a single unit, we call them. So single cells, but you, they always are in connection with other cells, with other neurons. So there's always an axon which connects with another neuron, and it always goes from axon to a dendrite. So this dendrite collects information from maybe 1,000, 10,000 other neurons, other axons. So it's not just a one-to-one -one relationship, it's one cell's connected with thousands of no. others. May maybe uh, the listeners uh, they basically know some uh, old, older textbooks where they actually always have one neuron connected to another neuron, but it's absolutely not uh, how it is in reality. It's always a couple of thousand neurons connecting to each other. How many neurons do we have in our brain? We have 10 to the 12th neurons in our human brain. That must mean we have trillions of synapses happening between different cells. Yeah, so on average, every neuron has a thousand to ten thousand synapses, so that will end up to ten to the sixteen number of synapses per brain. I actually don't know who counted that, but this is this is an average that everybody uses in the, in neuroscience. Do you think that might be a changing number, right? Yeah. <laughs> Depends on the person. That's one thing for our young scientists out there to go and <laughs> calculate. So, getting more kind of granular inside this. How do proteins move through the cell and communicate or, um, you know, neuro neuronal transmitters get released and taken up? We've talked about this a little bit in this series, but there's certainly vesicles that can capture information. But how does information move through the cell, right? There's quite a complex machinery or factory that's there. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, also, a, a, it's also complex biology. Um, so let me start at the beginning. First of all, if you are a, a protein, let's say a synaptic vesicle, and you want to go to the synapse, first you have to think, uh, do I want to go to the dendrites, where there's a synapse, or do I want to actually go to the axon, where there's a, a different type of synapse? So you want to go up to receive the information or release the information? Or basically. 
So that is already a big problem. How do you sort these vesicles and cargoes either in the dendrites or in the axon? So um, that all depends on motor proteins. What's a motor protein? A, a motor protein is uh, a protein that basically uh, uh, can convert chemical energy to mechanical energy. That means basically it's like fueling a car. You can drive your car because of the fuel. And these motor proteins are basically little cars in your axons and dendrites. How do they know which way to go? That's, that's a very interesting question. And uh, my lab has been thinking about this for many years, and other groups have been thinking about this. It comes down that the uh, cytoskeleton, and basically we're looking at microtubules, which is a subset of the, the cytoskeleton. These microtubules have a polar structure themselves. So they have a plus end and a minus end, and it has nothing to do with charge. It has to do with the growth speed of the cytoskeleton polymer. So the plus end grows faster than the minus end, and these mode. But it's very directional. It's very directional. Yeah, it can go only one way, and uh, these motor proteins they recognize this polarity, this intrinsic polarity of the microtubules. Jane, what is polarity, and why is it important for cells in the brain? Well, polarity is about moving in one specific direction, from getting from A to B. So proteins entering the top of a neuron, so to speak, are escorted appropriately and specifically through that neuron to the synapse and over into the neighboring cell. It's like shipping cargo. You don't want your package destined for New York ending up in Sydney instead. I want to take a step back to how the brain grows. How fast does the brain grow and when is it fully formed? The brain grows, uh, if you look at the size, very rapidly. So th there's a lot of cell proliferation, there's a lot of cells made, there's a lot of migration going on. And then um, uh, after birth, uh, it, it takes another two, three to four years um, uh, as, the, uh, as a child to basically refine everything. So all the cells are in place, but to make the connections, the synaptic connections, that will go on until you're four years, five years, of age. And are the number of neurons fixed? So, um, all, almost all the neurons are uh, made and uh, set up during, uh, around birth. Uh, so basically you have a fixed number of neurons in your brain. Um, however, there's some recent evidence that um, there is a little bit of proliferation in some brain areas, in the, uh, in the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb. And uh, that's very interesting. It's called neurogenesis. Uh, there's only a few neurons that do that. And uh, of course, people are speculating what are they good for? Is that to, some neurons will be dying? Is that to replace these neurons? Is it maybe that uh, it's related to some uh, activity of the brain? So it's a very interesting field, but I have to say over a year, uh, I think in our case, that will be only a hundred neurons. I mean, compared to the 10 to the 12th population of neurons. I have a very simple question. If you pull a neuron out of different parts of the brain, do they look the same down a microscope? They look exactly the same. So how do they know how to behave differently? I, how, I, I, how does a, a language cell know not to be a thinking cell or a um, you know, communication cell? Or I, I think you hit the right question there. That, that is one of the most, I think, uh, important questions uh, out there in the field. We don't know 
what it makes it different. Maybe it's not even on a single cell, but it could be the network where this cell is in and how many synapses they have, how the synapses are, how flexible the synapses are. So I would say it's probably more a network uh, property which makes one brain region different than another brain region than looking at a single cell. So then they create a niche and they start to influence each other, much the same way, it's different but analogous to how bacteria find their niches and they communicate to each other, or the immune system gets activated in a certain way but it will have a different outcome depending on whether it sits in a lymph node or a tissue or the gut. Yeah, exactly. So we can actually, from um, embryonic uh, brains, from, from um, we can actually culture neurons and we culture the neurons, we take them as primary neurons, we put them in just a Petri dish. Uh, I've always called them like 2D brains because we, they don't grow on top of each other, they just grow in 2D. Flat like layer of flat, cells. Flat network and probably it's like 100,000 neurons, 200,000 neurons and you, they make connections with each other, they start firing, they get specific pattern. So it, it looks like a self-organizing system once you have this, as you call it, niche. Having these neurons in dishes allows us to do really basic uh, biology. Understanding how our brain grows helps us in research understand um, when it's not healthy and what's going on when it's gone through some kind of traumatic injury. So what does happen in traumatic injury? Like, you know, a one-off concussion versus, you know, maybe a footballer's concussion where they've been getting repeated trauma to the brain. Yeah, so the, the neurons get um, really stressed uh, some neurons will break and uh, one of the theories is actually that you have uh, a lot of these neurotransmitters what we talked about that normally uh, are involved in the signaling from the from the axon side to the dendritic side the glutamate is released abnormally and in abnormal high levels so not just from the axon it's coming out of it's coming out of everything and it's called uh, glutamate toxicity and basically that will damage a lot of cells in the surrounding the neurons, the astrocytes, the glia. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and if that repeatedly happens, uh, of course that will cause all kinds of brain damage. And I think what is an interesting area is to look at brain development, where we actually looking at how a neuron uh, proliferates, decides to polarize and differentiate. We can maybe use that knowledge from the neurodevelopmental field in repairing this, this damaged area in the brain in a more adult situation. And look, can we reprogram them? Uh, do we understand how, why they polarize? Can we give them signals that they actually start differentiating? Or can we give them one more round of differentiation or proliferation and see, can they form a network? Uh, and this is basically, it's very basic biology to understand if you can repair a network, a neuronal network. What about a single nerve? Like when you get a seven nerve from some kind of peripheral, you know, break an arm or... Yeah, so if you, if you have an, uh, in, the, in the periphery, if you have a nerve injury, uh, most of the neurons actually grow back. So that is quite nice. But if you have a spinal cord injury, then these nerves don't grow back. And we don't understand why that is. Uh, and that is a, has been a paradigm in the field. How is it possible that peripheral nerves grow back and in the central nervous system they don't grow back because if we understand the difference already there we might be able to you know tweak the signal in one direction over the other and what's the current thought is that something to do with the status of the cell or the or there's the kind of support cells that are around those nerves both both yeah both it could be that 
uh, it could be the supporting cells basically that proliferate so fast, like the astrocytes, that basically block axons from growing out any further. Um, so in that way you want to prevent, let's say, the scar tissue from forming. Um, but you also want your axon to grow out. So I think it's, 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 it's the combination of both signals that are required. So blocking uh, cell proliferation, but also making sure your axon actually grows out. So uh, it, it, it's very hard to let an axon grow out, and especially in the direction you want, because he has to find his, the right target. He has to find the right neuronal population, the, the, the proper circuitry where he actually was in before. Uh, he has to find the right connection. And normally that is set up during development. And now in an adult situation, this one axon has to find his way through all the other neurons and find his partner back again. Jane, what are these supporting cells and how do they play a role in this story? Well, Wellington, there are different types of cells within the brain. We've talked a lot about neurons, but they're not the only cell in town. To optimally function, they need the support of other cells. One example are the astrocytes. We think when neurodegenerative disease happens, it can be because these supporting cells break down. So beyond just severing a nerve out in the periphery, what's going on with more kind of chronic diseases like ALS or Alzheimer's? Yeah, so, so the, we, we call these diseases neurodegenerative diseases, uh, where basically the neurons start dying without being hit every day or being uh, having uh, having uh, being in a boxing fight or something like that. So basically, it's a it's an it happens by age. Uh, but for some uh, people, they're more prone to getting Alzheimer or Parkinson's disease. And the underlying cause is, is, is not known. So if we don't know what is causing it, it's very difficult also to repair. Of course, we have several hypotheses. So there's two main pathological uh, phenomena. One are the A-beta plaques in the brain, and the other one are the tau tangles. And basically, it's absolutely sure if you have these pathological phenomena that uh, it's, there's a very high risk you uh, get Alzheimer. And so... But these are very structural changes within the brain that are, are associated with abnormal protein production or presence. Yeah, basically it's an aggregation of proteins, both on a beta level and uh, as on tau. And for me, tau is very interesting because tau, uh, we just talked about uh, microtubules and the cytoskeleton, and tau is actually a microtubule binding protein. So suddenly, in a disease state, it's not anymore a microtubule binding protein, but it actually starts aggregating. And uh, that causes all kinds of toxicity in the brain. Uh, so you can imagine that if you have a, um, normally if you have a long axon, and you suddenly start aggregating proteins, it basically will give a cloth. It will, we call it always sometimes like a traffic jam, because you fill up this little axon. It's long, but it's very thin. And basically there's no transport anymore possible. So it could be this, this, this aggregating of these proteins could be, could be a, a very initial event in the disease. So I imagine if you could take neurons out of um, an area that had Alzheimer's and put that into a dish and compare that to a healthy neuron, you'd start to see dramatic differences. But for some neurodegenerative diseases, that must not be the case. It could be defects in the supporting cells or just the function of the, the neuron itself. Yeah, you're completely right. So it, it could be that there's a, um, that Alzheimer, for example, is a very heterogeneous disease. 
that there will be several different ways you get uh, dementia. And uh, for now, we, we put it on one big pile called Alzheimer's disease, but it could be that there's uh, various and actually very different kind of uh, initial causes. Um, for example, it could also be that um, uh, there's one uh, very strong recent uh, development uh, about um, neuroimmunity. Basically, that the immune system in the brain is too, basically, too active. And it starts up eating neurons, these macrophages and other cells. They're just eating up neurons. Maybe they start eating up dying neurons, but also the good neurons. It's interesting. I think this whole field of the immune system being present in the brain, which we you know, normally think of, of being a protected organ, are actually in there doing good. And as immunologists, we're still really trying to understand what those cells are. And as we know with the immune system, it's got a good and bad outcome sometimes, um, depending on what it's doing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think what I think is an interesting uh, future perspective is that uh, we need to talk more to immunologists. Uh, neuroscientists need to talk to immunology because we need to understand what these cells are doing and Kasper, why they are active. Casper, <laughs> that's why you and I are sitting in the bar right now. <laughs> So thinking about something like Alzheimer's where you've got these tangles and there's this um, inappropriate production or, or movement of tau and A-beta proteins, is this affecting polarity? How, how, is this why there's a breakdown and then in communication? Yeah, there is, there is uh, quite a lot of evidence in the literature and, and also from our own work where one of the earliest events in, in neurodegeneration is actually loss of polarity. So um, uh, remember we talked about the protein tau, uh, which is a microtubule binding protein, and it actually can ca cause Alzheimer's disease and, and prefrontotobensia. Um, this protein is only present in the axon. It's very specific, it's a very nice marker, it only labels axons. But in the first instance where there's something wrong with, it, with that neuron, it basically it goes to the cell body and it goes into the dendrites. So you can see it in, in, in patient material, uh, the patient with Alzheimer's disease, you actually see that polarity difference. So the proteins that are normally in the axon and restricted there actually go now to the dendrites. And I can imagine that it's like a, a, a really bad event if the proteins normally involved in the output of the, of the neuron are now suddenly in the input part. And then, yeah, basically, I think this is a, a mechanism that's just circular and it gets worse and worse and worse, and then at the end the neuron just gives up. So they're involved, so there's a breakdown in the input, but are they also outputting in the dendrites instead of out, they're outputting in the wrong place as well? Yeah, basically that's, that's one, of the, one of the theories there is, is basically the, the input is gonna act like an output, and then the cell doesn't know where he has to send the signals. Basically he gets signals, and then he sends it back in his own dendrites, yeah. And, and then the cell, I, I can imagine that the cell at some point thinks, I'm going to go. <laughs> so with all of this complexity, how do you come to work and do your job? Like, what is that? How do you start to break that apart or break that down and reduce it to some component parts in the lab with a view to building it up again? No, I, I, I think this is, this is why I'm a neuroscientist. This is the most fascinating um, aspect of the work we, we don't know. And that's why I come to work every day motivated because I think that we, every day we, we come as a little bit closer to where we want to go. Um, but we, how we approach it is, 
from a very uh, fundamental, um, uh, basic part of biology. Basically, we were talking about these cultured cells in dishes, uh, where we can grow these neurons, uh, hundreds of thousands. And of course, what we can do, we can cut these axons and see is there a some drug or some treatment that actually allows these axons to grow out. And just starting by, by very simple neurons in 2D and doing these kind of assays. And yeah, we, we start by having a hypothesis. Uh, we'll, we think it is that we need to activate gene A and B and C, and then we do the experiment. And yeah, I agree, most of the times it fails. Uh, but at some point, every time, we come a little bit closer by understanding uh, where we want to go and let this axon grow up. So where will we be in five years from now? <laughs> That's a very hard question. <laughs> okay, ten years. <laughs> um, I think in ten years from now, we understand more of the brain, uh, more of the cell biology, more of the network, more of the connections. The question is if we can repair it still because the, the organ is so complicated, it's so heterogeneous. Different cell types, different neuronal circuitries, different brain areas. It's completely different than a liver, which is basically uh, one cell type, so we can do a treatment. But the brain is so complicated, so maybe we can be closer to understanding what is going on, maybe we can understand the cause of the disease, uh, but finding a treatment is, is, I think, very, very challenging. What first got you excited by neurobiology? Oh, about neurobiology? I think neurobiology is, sorry about uh, immunology, but I think it's one of the most, most fascinating <laughs> areas in, re disagree. No. <laughs> in, re in research. <laughs> because it's so complicated. And we know, relatively, we know so little of the brain and, uh, and the stakes are so high in all these disease areas. I think that's a very interesting balance. We don't know enough about the biology, it's complicated, and at, at some point, uh, all of us will be affected by it, indirectly or directly. Uh, we all know somebody that has uh, uh, some effects of neurodegeneration or Alzheimer or dementia and it affects us enormously. So I think that's a, it's a major challenge. We've talked a lot about the complexity and um, the, the hurdles that are going on now with um, understanding the brain and how it grows and disease, but where's the hope? Oh, I, th I think there's a lot of hope because I really strongly believe by doing basic science, uh, testing hypotheses, uh, and eventually testing these hypotheses in, in humans by clinical trials. Um, I have to say, uh, in general, we have not been so successful in neuroscience, um, but it doesn't say that it is not possible. I think we have different hypotheses, especially on a beta, uh, that a lot of pharmaceutical companies were chasing after. I think there's still hope for that hypothesis. And at some point, I think we find the right spot, the sweet spot, um, and eventually we're gonna find at least uh, a treatment. So it's really collating the basic research with our understanding of human clinical disease and then running clinical trials and doing this kind of reverse translation from what we're learning from those to bring yeah. back to the lab. Because we, we learned an enormous amount from the clinical trials that were not positive. Uh, sometimes it's not really appreciated, but we learned so much from um, 
uh, failed clinical trials in humans because we can basically see why it failed and why was it because uh, the doses of the drug was too low or we need to treat longer or we need to treat a different subset of patients. I think from these data we learn so much. So we can really develop hypothesis-driven experiments. Absolutely, and I think that's the way to go. Well, I certainly have great hope. Thanks for having a drink with me. Sure, I would love to keep you updated about our, our progress in neuroscience. Fantastic. That was super interesting. A healthy brain depends on coordinated communication between neurons and supporting brain cells. In our next episode, we will turn to the world of pharmacology, the branch of science focused on understanding how a drug works in the body. So stay tuned. In the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us. Like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. We know many of you have, and to you guys we say a heartfelt thank you. And now for me, it's back to the lab. <laughs>